Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 6, 16 through 24. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel, the good news that you created us, you love us, but you're holy and our sin has separated us from you and we are hopeless and helpless left to ourselves because of the sin of Adam, but also our own sin as soon as we're able. And so we're so grateful that you didn't leave us there but provided a way, provided life through your son, crucified and risen so that we might have life. And God, as we move into the summer months, I pray that we would not check out the tendency and the enemy would have us check out spiritually and just be uh, spiritually lethargic. But I pray that that would not be the case for us here gathered this morning and for the members that are traveling this weekend, that this summer would be a time of, of certainly travel and, and leisure, but spiritual intentionality and growth. And so that we wouldn't check out, but we could look back in August and think this was one of the more spiritually fruitful summers that I've ever had. Would you help us to do that? God, we do pray for our government that you would cause them to lead with righteousness. And we are so thankful uh, for so many have sacrificed their lives, sacrificed comforts so that we might have freedoms. And I pray that we would not take those freedoms for granted and increasingly that we would do our part, whatever that may mean, to preserve those freedoms. And God, as we open your book, would you help us not to take it for granted? Would we realize just how significant it is that what we're doing here, we're opening up words from your son, the ascended Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has all authority because you've given it to him and he is showing us how to live the good life. Help our unbelief. Would we treasure? Would we hear? Would we obey his teaching? We pray this through him, Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're new, what we do here at Southside is just work through books of the Bible. It's called the exposition of scripture. We're committed to it. And so we're in the gospel of Matthew. That's where we're at. Chapter six. You can go ahead and open up there. If you're using a Bible there in the chair in front of you, it's page 761 right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And let's remember what Jesus is doing. He's laying out the good life. 
The sermon starts in chapter 5, and remember what he says there again and again and again. We know these as the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And he tells us about what types of people, kingdom people are. And remember the word blessed, it means happy. Do you want to be happy in this room this morning? That means flourishing. It's the way of the kingdom. And so what does life look like when God is king? The kingdom of God is here. How are we to be? Well, it's right here in these chapters. Look with me just at the subheadings in chapter 5. So he begins with the Beatitudes and tells who those who flourish are, what kind of people they are. And then in 5.13, who are these who flourish? Well, they're different. They're countercultural. They're distinct. They're salt and light. They're a city on a hill. And then chapter 5.17 They're those who take the Bible with the utmost sincerity. They take the Bible seriously. And then verse 21, kingdom people are not angry people. Verse 27, they're not lustful people. Verse 31, they stay married. Verse 33, they tell the truth. Verse 38, we don't retaliate. Verse 43 and following, we love our enemies. And then transitioning to chapter 6, Jesus, this new Moses, this philosopher king, He lays out two ways that he's really going to lay out for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The way of the hypocrite and the way of what he called perfection. Not the idea that we never sin, but the idea of wholeness, maturity. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Look there at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. He warns us and then he gives us three examples in chapter six of these three main acts of Jewish piety. So he starts, you can see it's, they're broken by this phrase, when, when you. So it starts in verse two, thus when you, and he mentions almsgiving, giving to the needy. And then in verse five, and when you pray, and he talks about prayer and we spent some time in the Lord's prayer last week. And then in verse 16, and when you fast, So almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And so this morning we're going to see that disciples of King Jesus live for God's glory, not their own. And they live in light of heaven. They're not merely earthly minded. And he does that by covering fasting and then stewardship. So look with me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus mentions these hypocrites again. Jesus is most harsh towards the hypocrites. We're going to see it especially in chapter 23. And a hypocrite was a fake. They were a play actor. That's what the word originally meant, one who wore a mask. And we often think of hypocrites as those who who say they act morally, they say they act religiously on the outside, but they're really not. They're really immoral people. That's true. It's true of the word. But in Matthew 6, we've seen that Jesus' definition of hypocrite is actually a little more nuanced. Jesus defines a hypocrite as a person who is moral on the outside, who is righteous in outward behavior, but doing so with wrong motives doing so with the wrong heart they're not immoral they're the scribes and pharisees they're moral they just don't have a heart that's actually for god their heart is actually still focused on themselves 
That's what he's getting at in chapter 5, verse 20, when he says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the most externally righteous people around. Ours must be more. Why? Because ours comes from a heart that's been changed. That's why in, in these teaching we just looked at, that's why he says it's one thing not to murder in 521, but you don't even need to get angry. It's one thing not to commit adultery, but you don't even need to lust. That's what he means by you must be perfect, 548. Again, wholeheartedly committed to the Lord, not compartmentalized. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to get rid of the compartments in our lives. He came to change our hearts. He brings the new covenant where we get rid of these old stony hearts and have hearts of flesh. And so Jesus is warning, don't be like the hypocrites. They do it all for the wrong reason. They do all that they do for the praise of men rather than the glory of God. I mean, we just look at it. It's a, a big emphasis. Chapter six, verse one, they, they practice before other people. And then verse two, when they give, they do it that they may be praised by others. And then in verse five, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then hear about fasting in verse 16. They do it so that they may receive their reward, that they may be known as fasting. That's their issue. They fast, but really only so that they can be seen fasting. They look gloomy and they mess up their face. They want to make sure others know. And Jesus says, well, they've already received their reward. Look at verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, rather fast in secret. Don't let others know. Wash your face. Freshen up. Don't try to look all gloomy. Don't try to solicit the praise of men. Ironically, you know, especially in the age of social media, uh, you'll often have now, not so much this year, but because uh, of COVID, but you'll have Ash Wednesday services that kick off what? A season of fasting. And now what's the new trend? Let me take a selfie of myself with the ashes on my forehead. Look how spiritual I am. I want everyone to know that I'm fasting. Look, everybody, I'm doing the exact opposite of what my Lord commands me to do, but I'm really spiritual. I want you to know that. Believe it or not, this year, due to COVID, of course, you couldn't have a lot of Ash Wednesday services. Uh, so the Church of England launched an Instagram filter. I think we've got a picture. Here you go. Check that out. You couldn't make it to your service, but there's a filter so that you've got the cross however you go. <laughs> Jesus says, no, wash it off. Don't let others know that you're fasting. You know, the New Testament only mentions fasting a few times. It's in the Gospels and it's in Acts, never in the letters. And there's no direct command in the Bible for us to fast in the New Testament. But we see it happening. We see it happening. Jesus seems to be assuming that we'd happen. In Acts, it's happening. It's often connected to a season of prayer. What Jesus is really clear about here is it's to be done privately, not to show. And God will see, and God will reward you. Jesus appeals to reward again for the ninth time in this sermon. He says it again and again and again, reward, reward, reward. They have their reward. Don't be that way, be this way, and then you'll get a reward from your father who sees in secret. Jesus appeals to reward. Reward from God should be part of our motive. Is that part of your motive? Is that part of the reason you do what you do? 
Living for God's glory because it will be rewarded. Heaven will be more heavenly for those who are sold out to the Lord. Glory will be more glorious for those who are wholly committed to Jesus in all of life. And I don't think we need to think of like a bigger mansion. That's often the image you were given, right? I want to increase my square footage in my heavenly mansion. I don't think that's what we ought to be thinking in terms of material matters. But I think it's actually an increased capacity for enjoying him. More joy, a closer presence to the Lord. So when you fast, don't do it to be seen. That reward is pathetic compared to true reward. And then he turns to stewardship. Disciples live for God's glory, not their own. And disciples live and spend in light of eternity. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, do not... Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And Jesus brings up money right here in the middle of the most important Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually talked about money all the time. He spoke more about money and possessions than he did heaven and hell, sexual morality, or violence. 15% of everything he taught had to do with this topic, which is more than his teaching on heaven and hell combined. It's important to him, and so it should be important to us. You know, there's always some weirdness about pastors talking about money, but actually if pastors aren't talking about money, they're not following their marching orders anymore because Jesus talked about it all the time. It's very important to him. And here, the king of the world commands us not to lay up treasures on earth. Don't store up treasure on earth. In Jesus' day, of course, there would have been no banking, so goods would be stored. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't hoard up stuff here. Why? Well, he gives us the reason, because stuff won't last. Because hearses don't pull U-Hauls. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Stuff breaks down. Kids, isn't it a bummer? You know, you get all these Christmas gifts, get a lot of plastic. By March, it's broken, isn't it? Jesus said it would. Time erodes the material. Thieves take stuff. The point is, it's temporary. It's not going to last. So don't focus on storing up earthly wealth because you're ultimately wasting your time and effort. Listen to the Proverbs. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly, it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 27, riches do not last forever. <laughs> you can't take it with you. One time, someone asked John D. Rockefeller's accountant how much he left behind. You know the answer. All of it. I once read about a woman. She had this, a lot of stuff. She had stored up a lot. And so her husband had died and she needed to downsize. She had this estate sale and she hired a professional. And despite hiring a professional company to handle it, she only made $2,000. And their fee for handling was 50%. She made $1,000 and she asked the agent, well, you know, what do I do with the rest? She didn't sell it all. What do I do with all the rest of it? And the agent told her that their company could haul it away for a fee of $1,000. <laughs> a lifetime of stuff reduced to nothing in a weekend. Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth. Rather, store up treasure in heaven. Look at verse 20. But... Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
Notice first, though, Jesus is not against laying up treasure for yourself. Just like he's not against reward and pursuing reward in the previous verses. In fact, he commands it. This is a command. Lay up treasures in heaven. You should be treasure seekers. You should pursue reward. Jesus just wants you to seek the reward from heaven and not the reward from the praise of men. And here he wants you to lay up treasures that will last, not those that will be taken away. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying, don't be short-sighted. Keep the long view. Don't settle for mud pies in a slum when you can have a holiday at the sea. Live in light of eternity. Don't buy furniture for a hotel room. One of my favorite books on money is Randy Alcorn's little book called The Treasure Principle. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Very short. We've actually got eight or ten copies in the, in the book table for five bucks if you want to grab those today. Highly recommend it. And here's what The Treasure Principle is. You can't keep it, but you can send it ahead. It's exactly what Jesus is saying in these verses. Can't keep it here, but you can lay it up and send it ahead. Jesus says, it's foolish. It's foolish to focus on that which will perish while neglecting that which will not. Jim Elliott, missionary from several decades ago, paraphrased the teaching of Jesus well with his famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's foolish to do the opposite. Listen to the way Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 12. Tells a story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And here's the lesson he draws. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Psalm 49 Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Apostle Paul says much the same in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
the end of the letter, he says much the same teaching. Verse 17, he addresses the rich, which is so many of us in this room. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's fine to be rich. It's good to be rich. The church needs more rich people, but you just have to take care. Notice the, the six charges here just in these verses in 1 Timothy. Don't become conceited. Set your hope on God, not on riches. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and share. Jesus is a warning here to be careful. Don't focus your life on laying up treasures on earth. Rather, lay up treasure in heaven. And then he gives the reason again. I love how Jesus always shows us why. He commands and then tells us why in verse 21. For, because, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also this is such brilliant teaching jesus assumes that all people are going to seek some kind of treasure that's just who we are we're designed that way created that way we will either pursue worldly treasure or heavenly treasure and this treasure will control our hearts and whatever controls our hearts will then control our behavior Remember the centrality of the heart. In many ways, that's what Jesus is after in the new covenant. That's the difference between the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples. One's really clean outwardly. One's really clean outwardly, but they also have a clean heart. The heart in the Bible, it's the composite of the mind, will, and emotion. It's this comprehensive term for the person as a whole. It's the executive center of the self, the motivational headquarters, the animating center of all we do. Jesus, a little bit later in this gospel, is going to say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever you speak is down in there. Something comes out. Or in Matthew 15, again, rebuking those who don't have a heart for God, he says this. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the hearts. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Did you hear that? Out of the heart come all these behaviors. These, Jesus says, are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, the heart is the causal core of our personhood. A little bit later in Matthew, Jesus is going to command us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with everything that we are. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. There you are, in other words. You throw money at that which you love and it trains the affections of the heart, which shows us that money and worship are tied really close together. That's why preachers need to be talking about it. That's why Jesus talks about it all the time. Money and worship are tied very close together. That's why when we mention giving once a month or so here at Southside, we say, if you came prepared to worship through giving, because that's what it is. Jesus knew how the heart and money are intimately linked. As the saying goes, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you worship. That's why he ends this section there in verse 24 saying, you cannot serve God and money. 
Where your money is, there your heart is. So where's your heart? Think about what it is that, that you spend money on effortlessly. That, that item or that experience that you don't even think twice about. It's probably something you love. It may be something you love too much. That particular item or activity may be a functional God, a functional Savior, an idol. But the good news is it can be changed. Jesus says our hearts will follow our treasure. Where you invest, Jesus says, your heart will go. That's a promise from the Lord of the world. And so ask yourself, maybe there's some area that you wish you had more of a heart for. You know what Jesus says? Invest there. Your heart will follow. That treasure will control your heart and then your behaviors will flow from that heart. Are you lacking a heart for God? Jesus says, start giving towards his ends and you'll gain a heart for God. Want more of a heart for missions? Jesus says, start giving to missions. Your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, money leads, hearts follow. This is what John Wesley said about it. Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. And you all know how this works, every one of you. Just think of your last big purchase, whatever that may have been. For some of y'all, that's big. For some of y'all, it's very small. Whatever it was, what was something that you, you invested in? You know that so much more than just the purchase price goes into it, right? Whatever it is, then, then you must rearrange, replace, protect, ensure, accessorize, Clean, maintain, repair. Some of you never gave a second, second thought to the stock market until you invested in it. Now all of a sudden it's a regular occurrence that you're checking it. You might even have an app on your phone. Money leads, hearts follow. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? These are actually fairly tricky verses. It's a little obscure. We miss a wordplay. And the metaphor of the eye is a lamp. It has a number of possible interpretations. But I think the basic point Jesus is getting at here is you need light for the body to function. And this light depends on the condition of the eye. The eye is this metaphorical window between the inside and the outside of a person. And this word here for healthy, it can mean generous. It can mean singular. Again, it can mean whole. And the bad eye, or more, more literally, the evil eye in the ancient world was associated with greed and envy and selfishness. And so the good eye is a generous life. The bad eye is a greedy life. Let me just show you a few verses. Deuteronomy 15 says this about giving to the poor in the community. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Because your heart thinks, right? And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. A grudging eye is stinginess. Proverbs 23 says this, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Real rigid translation would be a man whose eye is evil. 
He hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Or even later in Matthew, there's a verse that uh, most of our translations say it's a question and it asks, do you begrudge my generosity? That's the question asked. But again, if you had a real rigid translation, it would say, is your eye bad because I'm good? It was this metaphor of greed. A bad eye, an evil eye, it's greed. And so here, the point is, the sign of spiritual health is generosity, a good eye. And so the warning here is don't be greedy. And then again, verse 24 sums it up for us. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says it's impossible. The word for money is mammon, which is a little bit broader, property, possessions, or money. And you can't serve both. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves, Jesus would invite us, is who's our master? Who are we devoted to? All people are treasure seekers. All people are worshipers of some Lord. The question is, who's the Lord? What is the treasure? Jesus' money and worship are tied together. That's why both Ephesians and Colossians say greed is is idolatry greed is false worship because what you most want is your God one of the most tragic things Jesus is pleading with us that could happen to a person is that they invest their life in the pursuit of the wrong treasure Jesus lived for eternity Missionary C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never save or even invest. The Proverbs commend leaving an inheritance. It even says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. 1 Timothy 5 warns, says that a man who does not provide for his family has denied the Christian faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Stronger words could not be fathomed. So we need wealthy people in the church who are committed to kingdom work, who are generous. Ministry takes funding. The warning is it's fine to own possessions as long as they don't own you. Some idols need to be toppled down, but others must be dethroned and put in their proper place. Money's not the problem, it's the love of money. That's the problem. So we all have hard work to do. Really one way to summarize the Bible's teaching on money and possessions with one word, it's stewardship. We're stewards. We actually don't own anything. We steward God's resources. They're his. We manage them for him. He has entrusted everything we have to us ultimately for his benefit, for his purposes. So as we begin to close, let me just mention three ways to be a good steward. This is the type of stuff that we often teach in our new members class. Three ways to be a good steward. Three ways to use Jesus' language here to store up treasures in heaven. Systematically, sacrificially, and with a smile. Systematically, George Mueller, he asked this question. Are you giving systematically to the Lord's work or are you leaving it to feeling? to impression made upon you through particular circumstances or to striking appeals. 
If we do not give from principle systematically, we shall find that our one brief life is gone before we're aware of it. And that in return, we've done little for that adorable one who brought us with his precious blood and to whom belongs all we have and are. And so give systematically. If you don't have a budget, there's some immediate application. Get a budget. Know what's coming in. Know what's coming out. I'm always just shocked at people who don't keep a budget. You'll be shocked probably the first time you do it. You're God's steward. You're his manager. And so know what's coming in. Know where it's going. And then start giving. If not tithing, I, I suggest getting there as soon as possible. And I, Alcorn challenges some of us, most of us probably think tithing is like the top of the end. Alcorn actually says it ought to be the starting point. Listen to what he says. Tithing, based upon the old covenant and the grace given in the new covenant, which should be even more, he says this, tithing isn't the ceiling of giving. It's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving. It's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be the training wheels to launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace Giving. And the reason I say is you budget and prioritize giving to the Lord is because God promises blessing if you do. Here at Southside, we talk negatively of the prosperity gospel a lot and often. If you haven't seen the documentary American Gospel, let me recommend you do that. There's a lot of horrific false teaching known as the prosperity gospel, which is basically that God's will for you is to always be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you're not, it's because you lack faith. That's heresy. But we can jump on the other end of that spectrum and embrace what's called the poverty gospel and the idea that God wants you poor and you're not holy unless you're poor. And that doesn't do justice to scripture either. Let me just read a few Proverbs. Might make some of you uncomfortable, but honor the Lord and notice what he promises to do. Proverbs chapter three, verse nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Grape juice for us in this room. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That is lack. Proverbs chapter 22. Verse four, could go on and on, especially with the Proverbs, teaching us how to live with wisdom. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You honor him first, he's gonna take care of you. And we have these audacious tests from the book of Malachi. Will man rob God? Yet you robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Incredible promise. This might be the only place in the Bible where God says, test me. Give and he will bless you. Read a Dave Ramsey book. Ramsey might want to treat, treat, tweak some of his stuff, but generally speaking, they're good steps. His, his famous baby steps are these. Number one, save $1,000. Get $1,000 in a savings account. 
Number two, begin systematically. I'll let you read him to learn how, but pay off debt. Number two priorities, get rid of debt. Debt is enslaving. Number three, get an emergency fund of three to six months of income so that tragedy strikes, you're going to be okay. And then his go like this, retirements, saving for college if you have kiddos, pay off your home. Whatever it looks like, here's my point. Get control of your life. One way to be a good steward is to get control of your financial life. Be systematic. Get a plan. And then second, sacrificially. Be a steward in terms of systems. Be a steward in terms of giving sacrificially. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to give sacrificially? Well, the number is going to be different for everyone in this room. But the point is, though, give till it hurts. That's what the word sacrifice means. It means we'll have to say no to some other things. Love C.S. Lewis here. He says, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because of our charitable expenditure excludes them, end quotes. So sacrificially, a giving savior should have giving disciples. Really, there's a sense in which we're no more, more like God than when we're giving generously. God so loved, he gave. God is the giving God. It's what he does. And then third, give with a smile. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. What an amazing verse. Of course, God loves all his children, but there's this special sense here in which he loves people who give, not only give, but give with cheer, with a smile on their face. And the key really to be able to do this is believing everything that Jesus has just said. When we really believe this and everything the Bible teaches about stewardship, it's a joy to give, even when it's sacrificial. I'm storing up treasure in heaven. Can't keep it here. I'm sending it on ahead. Jesus says it's more blessed, again, happy, flourishing. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You want more blessing in your life, right? Jesus gives you one ingredient here. This book I mentioned by Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, it lays out six keys. I want to share them with you. It's kind of a way of summarizing this. Number one, God owns everything. I'm his money manager. Number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. That's what Jesus just said. Number three, heaven, the new earth, not the present one, is my home. Number four, I should live today not for the dot but for the line, and what he's getting at is the second point here, that we live in light of eternity, not just our little speck. So we should live for that. Live for that which is going to matter 10,000 years from now. Number five, giving is the only antidote to materialism. And so as I've laid some of this out, you know, whatever it is that you just throw money at without effort, that might be your idol, that might be your functional savior. What's the antidote? Giving. It's the only antidote to materialism. And then six, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. This is Jesus' vision, Matthew chapter 5, of the blessed life. Disciples of King Jesus live for God's glory, 
not their own and not for the praise of men. And they live in light of heaven, not focused only on this earth. We live with the end in mind. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite preachers. When he was 17, he wrote his resolutions, and here's one of them. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. It's a great resolution. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. My question for you is what changes do you need to make today when it comes to stewardship? Alcorn, at the end of his book, he exhorts us to ask ourselves this question. Five minutes after you die and you're face to face with the king of glory, what will you wish you had given away while you still had the chance? Why not do it now? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep it, but you can send it ahead. Do not lay up treasures on earth because it's not going to last. Rather, lay up treasures in heaven because it will. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for this Sermon on the Mount. It's been in our grill for so many weeks, but we want to have the heart that invites you to come in and do heart work. Step on our toes and convict us and move us and shift us and change us. We want to be those who more faithfully reflect you because we believe that this teaching, even though it's hard and even though it's countercultural, it leads to the blessed life, the life of joy, the life of flourishing. You are our creator and you know best how life ought to be lived. And so, number one, would we believe you? Help us. Would we agree with you? And then second, would you change our hearts so that it's a joy and not a burden to follow some of this teaching that is really hard? We need your grace to do so. We need your help. And so we ask for it. Would you work in our lives so that we live for your glory and your glory alone? And would you work on our lives that we live our little small speck, our little mist of a life in light of eternity? For our joy and for your glory. Amen.